Way back in the early 60s, out in a suburb of Sydney, they erected a large system to try and put up signposts and traffic signals. It was very elementary, solid in its way, and became known affectionately as the Meccano set. Well, it comes a time when that needed to be replaced and you could put a quite different system, a modern design to it. The community hated the idea. They had their affection for this Meccano set and so it has been replaced in a very similar manner. But don't let me try and describe it. Let's get an expert. I have on the line my good friend and long-term colleague and traffic engineer, Graham Patterson. Graham, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. How would you describe this particular Meccano set? Well, it's quite a unique uh, structure, isn't it? It's um, part of Sydney's history and culture. Uh, It's very well known, perhaps one of the best known icons in the New South Wales road network, or even Australia-wide. Many people pass through it each day, and many people have been passing through it in the 57 years since it was erected. Of course, I wasn't around when it went up, but uh, I, I started work with the Department of Motor Transport in 1968. Now, it, it was a state government organisation that managed um, road traffic. It controlled all the parking signs, all the traffic lights. It looked at road safety, but it didn't build or maintain roads. Back in those days, there was a separate New South Wales organisation called the Department of Main Roads, and uh, the people in that wise organisation decided to build this special structure. How would you describe it? Four pillars, four posts and connections between? Would that be a way to describe it? Yeah, it's not quite Lego, more like the old-fashioned Meccano set, Um, a large steel construction. There's four upright posts with some um, uh, sort of uh, structural engineering reinforcing struts on them, and then uh, four big pipes um, welded together or bolted together in a square that um, sits up above and uh, straddles the roads in, in all four approaches. It's a wide intersection for Sydney, and certainly for Sydney in 1992. Yeah, the the, um, the history of it's not absolutely clear. Of course, we know when it was built and um, when it went up. Um, but uh, reading between the lines and what I picked up through my career, I gather that um, oh, there was a big surge in traffic in in Sydney in the 1960s. What had gone on is um, after World War Two, there was a surge in private car ownership. Uh, particularly in America, in England and in Australia. And by the 60s, uh, people were moving out to live in the suburbs and um, foregoing public transport. There was a greater focus on owning your own car. You know, we had the Holden factory churning out vehicles. They were getting more affordable and, uh, of course, many people bought them. Uh, and the outer suburbs were developing. And I think um, Australia was a bit envious of the United States building its expressway system, which were connecting their cities together. Uh, And so we wanted to build some major roads to handle for our growing traffic. Uh, And uh, out in the western suburbs of Sydney, where the Meccano set lives, uh, we were seeing subdivisions of property, we were seeing population growing, and a lot more people commuting. So um, the road was widened out there, uh, and... That particular intersection, was it covers two 
it's a, a major crossroad. In parts, it's eight lanes wide, which is um, perhaps very unusual in Australia in the 1960s. Now, we needed, because there's so many turning um, movements there, there's people turning left and right on every approach, I think, uh, back in the 1960s. We needed signposting to tell people where to go or how to get to where they were going um, because it wasn't wasn't a very well-known area. It's not surrounded by shops. It's still surrounded by trees on uh, two sides and the um, shops and houses are set well back. So it's sort of a bush or outer suburban intersection. Uh, so it was in the middle of nowhere. What uh, and what happened is I think um, because we had this major intersection, we had to signpost it properly. You couldn't put the signposting way off to the side when you've got an eight-lane road because you'd have to look way off to the left or right to see, uh, look for the signs telling you which way to Parramatta and which way to Liverpool. So it was decided, I think, to build this overhead structure um, rather than a lot of separate poles. Uh, you just have the four posts and um, this big square, metal square, pipe section up above and all the signs could be hung on that and more importantly the signs could be directly above each lane so the sign could be specific to each lane of traffic telling you what that lane took you into uh, whether it's Parramatta, the city or wherever um, and I think that was a driving force now that was the structure was designed and built by the Department of Main Roads uh, which is um, what we now call a vertically integrated organisation. It could, it would decide what was needed, it would design it, it would manufacture it in its own workshops and then it would install it on site and then it would um, maintain and operate it. Although they didn't quite do everything because, as I said, the Department of Motor Transport, it was responsible for all um, mandatory traffic controls uh, such as traffic lights, stop signs and giveaway signs. Well, we didn't have giveaway signs, so I think they're actually caution signs. Uh, so the Department of Motor Transport um, also had to come to the party and traffic lights were put at the Meccano set um, and they were switched on on the 25th of June, 1962. Now, I worked for the Department of Motor Transport for quite some years and we always had a big rush at the end of financial year to switch on more traffic lights and... Uh, the 25th of June tells me that was a rush job back then too. I'm sure there would have been a few people working feverishly behind the scenes to get it all ready. So if we go in the annual report for that year, which of course was reported to Parliament and the public. My early first career with the then Department of Main Roads uh, was building traffic lights or just administering the building of traffic lights. And you're right, wasn't it? There's always a or should we do this carefully or what have you? But then when you got to the, towards the end of the year, it wasn't dangerous, it wasn't done badly, but it was done with greater urgency, that they f make sure that they still get the same budget or perhaps a little more next year. Yeah, there was another surge each year too. Um, before Christmas, the Department of Main Roads would always try and open up a few new sections of road for the holiday motorists, um, uh, and also so their workers could go on a well-deserved holiday uh, and take their, their four weeks off yes. <laughs> without um, leaving a half-finished job uh, with the public to drive to. Um, but, yeah, so back back in 1962, there were only 333 signals, traffic light signals in New South, all of New South Wales. So um, perhaps the Makano set was number 333. Uh, yeah, it might have been a couple less, though. So. It was brutalist design in a way, wasn't it? It it was 
you know, solid engineering and proud of of the structure rather than the aesthetics. Yeah, I don't think um, much traffic engineering had good aesthetics at that stage. It was very, very functional, but um, uh, architecture was the same way. If you remember the old power stations built in the 1950s and 60s, so sort of large concrete slab blocks. And yeah, this was a simple pipe structure, but it was very effective. Um, pipe is mass produced and it's, um, you know, its strength and uh, engineering qualities are very well known. So it's relatively easy to work with and quick to fabricate. Um, also in, in that side, what is important is, or in traffic engineering generally, when you build something, you want to build it really quickly on site. So you're not um, disrupting motorists for long periods of time. You can't block off a major highway in Sydney for a month while you um, lay concrete and dig lots of holes and lay pipes and and foundations. So this would have allowed the workers at the time just to prepare four big concrete um, bases in the ground and then um, over a few nights I'd come out with uh, a number of cranes and assemble the structure um, just in the middle of the night. A few hours would only would be enough to put up each major section. So that's uh, that's still done today. Some works on the Harbour Bridge have gone the same way. And it's becoming even more trendy in terms of putting in whole bridges, that you prefab the whole bridge and uh, bring it in late at night. I think in Adelaide they shut down a major road for three days when in reality if you had a form worked up and done everything you would have had it shut down for as you say at least months if not more this whole meccano said i think it weighed 25 tons each beam is 32 meters in length see that's what you were saying earlier isn't it graham that now we have technology and strength of materials to get long arms cantilevered over the road with signposts on them whereas back then we were more you've got to bridge it you've got to have a support on either side to to bring it across but of course it's interesting isn't it that the public just loved the idea of their Meccano set and didn't want to lose it Originally, it was proposed because the structure was ageing, you know, but I think bridges are designed for a lifespan in the order of 100 years, but signposting structures, um, they're, they're not as long-lived. Um, they can rust and wear and tear and fatigue with uh, movement over the years. So it, it did did become time to replace it. Um, and uh, it was decided... Uh, initially, initially, there were thoughts about... Just replacing it with modern technology, you know, the mast arms are cantilevered posts you see at a lot of traffic lights with signs. Uh, but there's big spans out there. Um, so some public consultation was carried out in early 2015. Um, a lot of letters were sent out and people were invited to send their comments in. There were, I believe, 220 comments came back in. And amazingly, uh, of those, uh, 201 said, keep the present structure. We really value it. 12 people said it should be removed and others were um, a bit undecided and perhaps take the cheapest approach. So um, 201 out of 222 supported keeping the, the structure as it was, which is quite amazing, the public support level for it. Uh, so it was decided to rebuild it in the same in the same appearance, the same sort of mechanical structure. But it does have some traffic engineering advantages too. It means there's only four real posts out there. So if you are unfortunate enough to have a traffic accident, lose control of your vehicle, 
um, there's a much lower chance of hitting a big uh, post if there's only four major ones. There are there are still some smaller traffic light poles, but not um, not as many as, as if we had have gone to present day type of structures with different ones for signposting and traffic lights. Um, another interesting thing about the structure is because it was designed by main roads for signposting, when the Department of Motor Transport uh, just came to put its traffic signal works in, it decided to run the, the cables, wiring for the lights uh, across the structure rather than doing the traditional thing, which is digging under the road and putting in um, pipes to carry the cables. Uh, but the structure wasn't really designed to carry the cable, so the um, the maintenance technicians who looked after the traffic lights always cursed whenever they had to work on it because it was very difficult to get the cables across. Uh, they, they had to go through some small holes in steel work and um, whenever we told them a traffic light had to be at a new spot, they'd have to go out there with drills and cut new holes in the structure to put on their supporting brackets and equipment and the um, structural engineers always anyone drilling holes in their finely designed structures because it can weaken them yes. in unintended ways. So, so that, that's that. Mm, lovely. That's lovely. Talking about uh, the structure and what have you, having just the four posts means there's less targets to hit, but, gee, you wouldn't. You want to protect them very strongly, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to take one out because the whole lot would fall down. Yeah, surprisingly, though, in the 57 years, and I think there's currently 80,000 vehicles a day go through it, there hasn't been any major structural damage to the posts, or those four posts. They are protected by uh, little ring concrete walls, so they're um, a bit like the New Jersey curb. You'll see um, separating traffic on motorways these days. So, so they're protected a bit, but I, I, I still wouldn't like to run into one, of course. Uh, there are some other posts, and there's there's another interesting story there too. The the electricians or technicians who um, repair the traffic lights, uh, their job wasn't too bad in the 1960s and 70s. But as traffic got um, heavier and faster, um, they became more concerned for their safety, and uh, particularly of concern to them were the traffic light poles which were on median arms in the middle of busy roads, because uh, Back in the 60s, we were just using the old um, incandescent bulbs in the traffic lights, and they had a lifespan of about uh, three months, and quite a few would burn out early. So the technicians will have to go out, uh, go onto the median island, which is often quite narrow, put up their ladder and change bulbs. Now, um, one um, one technician in charge of maintenance in that area, he was really worried about his workers, so he actually under his own initiative, went down Woodville Road and slowly removed all the posts on the median islands between um, Parramatta Road and um, the Hume Highway, all the way down Woodville Road. Uh, he wasn't mm. supposed to do that, of course, and it wasn't the designer's intention, but um, it made it a lot safer for his workers. Uh, but there's, there's still there's still one or two left at the Makano set in odd spots where we, we couldn't do it all on the overhead structure. Graham, you remember as a kid that large structures like this were often places that you recognised and became almost landmarks to you, not just for looks, but I think the one out 
Down in the southwest, this Meccano set was often an indication that you were on your way for a holiday or something. That I know a lot of regular people went through there, yet it became for those that were heading out of Sydney as though you've at least reached a milestone. I guess there's a range of those around in your own mind and in the minds of the public in general. As a child, of course, I sat in the back seat of my parents' car, or my father's car in those days, of course, and we'd go off for our country drives. And um, I wouldn't actually know where we were along the highways, but I'd recognise these big focal points or um, notable um, icons out there. So there was, um, of course, the Meccano set, although we didn't call it that then. There was the blinking light up um, on the, in the northern suburbs uh, towards the beaches, uh, we always recognise a harbour bridge and a few ferries. And in my neck of the woods in the inner west, we always used to take note of Peak Friends Corner, which was very well known. Uh, that's um, It was a biscuits factory, which made it of interest to children like myself. Um, and the other one, which um, we used to use as a yardstick of where we were, was the Vauxhall Inn, which is a, a, a hotel on the corner of Parramatta Road and Woodville Road, Church Street. Uh, you, you knew you were somewhere, and there, there are other ones scattered around the state and Sydney. The dog on the tucker box was also you know, a country one. You knew where you were when you saw it out the window. Um, even though you're not driving, you don't always know where you are or how far you are from other objects. So, yeah, um, this focal point navigation, it, it, it works well in other cities too. The interesting thing about the Peak Fringe was it had a turret on the corner of the building. It's now a hardware store, I believe, and I think there might be a little office up there that had a clock on the top of it. It, it stood out. Yeah, and if you think back in the 1960s, a lot of people couldn't afford or didn't have a wristwatch, so um, there were a lot more public clocks around on towers, and they were quite popular. Uh, yeah, so Peak Fringe was quite handy, Um Bradville Cotton Mills um, was another one on Parramatta Road Camp Town um, near Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, uh, which um, I always used to take note of. And you knew where you were. And Grace Brothers Shopping Centre in at Broadway, that was another icon. It, it had um, water tanks in the, in the shape of giant um, steel balls up on top of its um, tower. And, uh, and the AWA Tower, that was another navigation icon so yeah the icons were were important but we don't use them as much now navigation has changed a lot for navigation wasn't it uh, go along till you see the big tower whereas now of course navigation is quite often your phone or your car talking to you turn right at the next intersection that has evoked wonderful memories for me graham not the least of which you mentioned a biscuit factory and so while not on a car i used to travel by train to school that I used to go past North Strathfield, which was the Arnott's Biscuit Factory, and I always remember the smell. It was always, which for a young kid, it was just delightful, and you would navigate almost by the smell in that regard. I remember the Arnott's Biscuits Factory on Parramatta Road, that the, and as you say, the smell of the biscuits would waft around, and that brings to mind another one on Tavernus Hill at Petersham, the old Miller's Brewery, that um, big concrete cube on the top of Tavernus Hill. Yes. You'd get the the smell of hops, yes. and that was repeated down in Broadway near the Kent Brewery near Central Railway. Which has now been turned into units. That may have been more uh, important to your father, but uh, <laughs> but certainly memorable to the whole family. 
Another interesting point about the Meccano set, uh, that was just an in-house name which the, um, the traffic light um, technicians used to use for it uh, when talking to each other. Its official name is Traffic Control Signal 164, but informally everyone called it the Meccano set. Now, the public didn't call it that for some time, but uh, when we started reporting traffic conditions from the Traffic Control Centre to all of the radio stations and other people wanting... Um, to know where there were delays, uh, our um, our traffic reporters in house started saying, "Oh, it's at the Meccano set," and it quickly quickly became a public term. The public uh, became well aware of it. <laughs> Graham, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your information and insight. Thank you, David. Bye. And that's Graham Patterson, a long-term friend of the program and myself, a colleague of many years, who is a traffic engineer and worked for the government authority, the road authorities, and has a wonderful sense of history and its place and its interaction with the community. In the public consultation, it came out that a lot of people regarded it as a gateway and um, some of the councils out that way even regarded it as a gateway to Liverpool and uh, whatever other councils around there. So, yeah, that, that was surprising. I, I don't see it as a gateway now, but I, I did as a child. Another point I didn't mention is, um, oh, even 20 years ago when we were doing some traffic studies, I was quite amazed to find that peak hour at Meccano set was 6am <laughs> because uh, all the tradies lived in the southwest and they were coming in towards um, the rest of the city to do their daily work. So peak hour started really early out there. It wasn't 7 or 8 a.m. It was 6, sometimes 5.30 that was stuffed. I can send you a paper on the blinking light. I, I don't know if you're aware of that one. Warringah Road and um, Forest Road over Lambie Heightsway. It, it's before we had traffic lights. It just used to be a, a light hanging in the middle of this big intersection which flashed 24 hours a day. And it was telling people, be cautious at this intersection. And it, it it was known for years and years. It's had write-ups in local papers and everything. I'll see if you can find details of that one. I did download it once.